Remain standing now for the reading of the Word of the Lord. We're in Peter's epistle, and we're at the introductory part, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Word of the Lord. And you may be seated. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter. We saw a little bit about the life of Peter last week. And today we take a look at his audience, the recipients of the letter. He calls them elect exiles. And we'll see what he says about them in the passage. The elect exiles of the dispersion or the diaspora. One of the most wonderful things that the Lord did for His people in the centuries prior to the coming of Christ, historically, was He scattered Israel. And you'll read about it in the Old Testament. Over and over, God threatens to scatter Israel if they do not have the faith and belief and worship in Him. They will be scattered for disobedience. They will be scattered for, for idolatry and numerous other things. The threat of scattering, it was like a curse upon Israel. And God, sure enough, because of their disobedience and because of their sin and their idolatry and the fact that they refused to be set apart and different from all the other nations, God just threw them in the big middle of the other nations. That's kind of like being threatened with eternal punishment. You don't want to have anything to do with God in this life. You don't care for God. You ignore God. You despise God. You may not believe in God. So God just puts you away from Himself. Gives you what you want. What you desire. You want to be away from God? God will put you in the eternal darkness of His divine displeasure for all eternity. And that's what happened to Israel. They were dispersed. They were exiled. They were banished to the nations. Two things God did in that dispersion. Number one, He remembered His covenant to the remnant. He brought the remnant back. Each and every time they were dispersed and punished, God would bring back a remnant proving that there was always a people that God had His affection set upon and He would never, ever, ever fail them and let them down. And God would return them. He returned them from Babylon, the exile there that He had determined upon them. But then God also left a good number of them in the nations round about. And in that place of exile, in that place of dispersion and banishment, many of them retained, 
held on to as well as they could the knowledge of the true God, the knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that God had made to the prophets and the fathers and the kings of Israel, that there would remain a people, that there would be an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, a perpetual nation. So God left them in that place, but they clung and they hung on to the Lord. They didn't have the temple. It was in Jerusalem and eventually it was destroyed. They didn't have the Holy Land. They didn't have the blessings of the promised land, the milk and honey. But what they did have were the Holy Scriptures. The oracles of God, the precious promises, the recordings of the law and the prophets and the writings. And so they formed an institution that was not in the Old Testament. It was not founded by Moses. It was not contemplated anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. They founded the synagogue, the Sunu Gogei, the gathering together. And so in these foreign and alien places, they would come together as small clusters, small flocks in all of these places, and they would worship the Lord. They would read the scriptures and the Psalms. They would pray and they would remember the Lord. And it was one of the missionary methods of St. Paul, especially, and also the other apostles, that they would take the gospel to the world, to the nations, as Jesus had commissioned them to do. But where they would go, they would find these synagogues, faithful, God-fearing Jews, and they would go into those synagogues and they would preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, buried, and risen, and coming again. And large numbers of the people believed in these synagogues. And that became the nucleus of the church in that particular geographic area. Many did not believe and they persecuted the church and there were divisions and you can read about it in quite a bit of detail in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters. But Peter was part of that same flow. And so when he writes to the exiles, he knows to whom he's writing. He's writing to people who believe in Christ, but are part of the remnant living in a strange land. Oh, that describes us, doesn't it? If we really know who we are, if we know our identity in Christ, aren't we the remnant? He names five geographical regions. He calls them and names them Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Don't look in the back of your Bible to your maps. I'll tell you where they are. All of these form contiguous countries that are all east of the Aegean Sea, north of the Mediterranean, and south of the Black Sea. In other words, they're the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Paul's ministry, you remember in the book of Acts, he left out from Antioch and he went up right through the middle of this region. And for some reason, the Spirit wouldn't let him go to the right or to the left. He was forbidden to go into Asia, you remember. Instead, he just kept going north. And every time he wanted to move over to that eastern part, the Spirit would forbid him. Remember that story? And then when he got all the way to the northern tip, 
He got a call from Macedonia. Macedonia is to the west. It's the northern region of Greece. Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south. And he was called over to Macedonia and ended up in Philippi and then Thessalonica and Berea and then on down into Corinth and Athens. And you know the story of Paul's missionary journey. In other words, Paul covered the western half of the Roman Empire of the Mediterranean era, area of that first century. And Peter is now addressing the eastern half of that great empire, the, the nations of that particular region. And it's interesting to me that he's going to say something here, and I'll delineate it briefly in a moment. He's going to have a Trinitarian formula. He's going to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me that in this eastern half of the empire, in the next three centuries, is where we have most of the great councils and disputes and debates and decisions with regarding historic Christian orthodoxy, especially orthodoxy having to do with the nature of the triune God. It was in this region that we had the Nicaea where we had the Nicene Council in 325 and then subsequent councils. And other councils were held in this region of the world that had received as direct address Peter's first letter to them. It's also in this area where we had some outstanding Orthodox theologians known as the Cappadocian Fathers, Gregory of Nicaea and others. You can read about them as you read your historical theology and the debates that went on. It was in this region that had received this primitive, pristine word from Peter, right there in the middle of the first century, that established them in their understanding of the triune God and their understanding of Orthodox Christian faith. And this region, the northern part of which ended up becoming the capital of what we know as the Eastern Orthodox region, Eastern Orthodoxy. The great branches of Christianity were East and West. They were Greek and Latin. They were Orthodox and Catholic. And those were the two great divisions. This, of course, is really, I think, no historical accident. I believe strongly in the providence of God, as I know you do as well. And you can see the hand of God at work, not just in ancient history, not just in biblical history, but in biblical and New Testament origins, and also to see the influences that continue over 20 centuries of the spread of the Christian faith in the Christian gospel. Now that's a bit of the geographical. Let's look now at the doctrinal. He greets them and identifies them as the elect exiles who live in this region, but then he mentions not just the place where they live, but he mentions their standing in salvation. In other words, their spiritual address, where they belong, where they live, who they are, their identity. Geographically, they may be exiles. They may be part of the diaspora. But relationally, they qualify as members 
of the family of God, the triune God. Now, theologians speak often of the Trinity, and I try not to speak often of the Trinity because it's hard to speak accurately of the Trinity. But God is triune, that is three in one. And we discover this as He reveals Himself, as He makes Himself known. And that's what we see here. And mentioned only briefly are attributes or actions of each member of the triune God. It says the Father. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then is mentioned the Holy Spirit in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And then for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. There's the mention of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's a Trinitarian formula. Now sometimes theologians like to think and try to understand the Trinity as well as the human mind can comprehend it. And they speak of the ontological Trinity and the economic Trinity. (laughs) Is it too early for this? I don't think so. Most of you may already know what I'm going to say, but just for the benefit of the rest of us to get our thinking on track here, let me take a minute. The ontological Trinity is thinking of the Trinity, the triune God, as He exists. It is thinking in terms of His usia or His substance. It is His natura or His nature. Those are the Latin words that are used in the theological discussions. In other words, Who is the triune God in His essence? Each person of the Trinity, fully God, having all the attributes of deity. Each person of the Trinity being complete within Himself. Each person is not one third of the Trinity, but each person is God entire. And yet there are three persons, one divine essence. It's not contradictory. If I said it was one person in three persons, that would be contradictory. But it's one essence, three persons. And they are distinct persons, distinct personalities, if I can use that word without being too disrespectful, in the sense that each person is totally distinct from the other person in his personhood. That is that they can have each one an I-thou-he relationship. Is it too early for this? (laughs) The I-thou-he or I-you-he relationship is a relationship where any person of the Trinity can speak of himself and say I and can speak of any one of the other two and say you and then speak to one of the others and say, He. That's pretty distinct, isn't it? Distinct personalities. They have an I, you, He relationship. Christ can speak of Himself. He can speak of the Father. He can speak to the Father of the Son. We hear that in Jesus' prayer in the garden. Very triune, Trinitarian prayer. 
And that's the relationship that they have in distinct persons. One divine essence, one nature, one divine being, but three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I mentioned the theologians speak of the ontological, the ontology is the science of being, so that's the, the being of God, the nature of God, the person of God. But there's also the economic trinity. Is it too early for this? <laughs> the economic trinity is the way we think of what those persons do. It is their actions. It is their, their works. In the Latin, it's the opus. In the Greek, it's the erge, the energy, the, the work. In other words, what do those persons do? Well, they don't always do exactly the same thing in relation to one another, perhaps, but in relation to the creation. In other words, how does the triune God and the three distinct persons and the one essence relate to the creatures and to the creation? And it's easy to us to think of one member of the Trinity having a leading role or being very, very involved in one particular aspect of the divine work, the divine actions. For example, we think of creation. We think God the Father as the creator. But then we learn that from John's prologue that Jesus Christ was in the beginning with God and he was God and all things were created by him. It was not anything created apart from him. So we find the Son was an active agent in the creating work of the Father. And then we learn that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the breath of God was the active, emo was the active emotive force in all of the creation. He breathed upon the abyss. Out of the mouth of God came wind, came breath, came spoken word. That's the Spirit of God in the creation. And God breathed into the nostrils of the man, and he became a living soul. So we see the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, the wind of God involved. So there's a sense in which one member of the triune God may be dominant, but yet he is not the only one. They work together, they work in harmony. And this intra-Trinitarian working, mysterious as it is, inexplicable really, is what brings about the whole creation and redemption activity of God. And we hear about the work of the Son. The work of the Son is that of a mediator between God and man because He is both God and man. And He's the one mediator between God and man. A mediatorial work that is described as being primarily that work of the Son to mediate the Father, to minister the Father. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, Jesus said. And yet the Spirit of God has 
a mediatorial work to do as well in indwelling and in bringing the life of the Father to the human soul in regeneration and in new birth. So you get the picture. You see that, that Jesus said it real clearly. He says, my Father works and I work. <laughs> I do the works of my Father. And then there is a certain, which I won't get it. In fact, I won't get into it all. I won't even mention it. We're just about out of time. Because I've got to tell you, here now we speak of the principally the economic trinity. In other words, something that each member of the trinity does predominantly. And they're spelled out. First of all, the father elects. He chooses. And he does it not from early times, but from eternity. There's a difference. From eternity, past, prior to the creation. The Bible says that God chose a number. And it says he chose them according to foreknowledge, not merely foresight. Foresight would be a choosing that would say, well, I know what they're going to do, and so I see someone's going to choose me, so I'll choose them. The word electos, it just means that. It means to elect, to choose. If you've got two choices on the ballot, what are you going to do? <laughs> you've got to choose. And that's just the, what, exactly what it means. It's not a technical theological word at all. It just simply means to pick. And that's what the Father does, but He does it according to foreknowledge. And foreknowledge, prognosis in the Greek, is more than just an arbitrary decision, a determination. It's beyond a determination. It's a determination based upon a whole host of factors. And one of those factors is the love and the affection that impels God to place His favor, His divine electing grace upon a soul. And if it wasn't for divine electing grace, there would be no elect exiles. There would just be exiles. No one comes to the Father except He is drawn. He is brought to the Father. And everyone that comes to the Father, the Son receives. And everyone that the Son receives, the Spirit gives life. So we have that located in the heart of the Father. But then the, third, the uh, other person of the Trinity's, uh, Trinity is mentioned. Um, the, the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies. Hagias sets apart. Sanctus in the, in the Latin. In the Bible, as I've said over and over and over, sanctification means to cut and to clean. And that's what the Spirit does. He cuts us out of the herd. He cuts us out of the mass of humanity. He separates us unto Himself. It's a holy separation. That's what holiness is. It's saying, this is mine and I possess it and I will keep it and I will protect it. And that's what the Spirit does for us. And He cleans us up. He makes us worthy. Christ was not worthy of death, and yet God regarded him as a sinner in order to crucify and to bring about an atonement and a shedding of blood for sin.
You and I are not saints, but yet we are regarded as so by God because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Which brings us to the third mention here, and that is of the Son. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood. The rontizo, that's the word for sprinkling. Baptizo is the word for baptize. Rontizo is the word for sprinkling. And the sprinkling is the sprinkling of the blood. And that imagery is not missed on anybody that's read the book of Leviticus. Because animals were slain in the Old Testament for all the sacrificial rituals and blood was sprinkled and it was sprinkled everywhere. It was sprinkled on the text of the law. It was sprinkled on the people. It was sprinkled on the tabernacle. It was sprinkled on the altar. There are all kinds of things that were cleansed, made holy and sanctified by the blood of the sacrificial victim. And that's what Christ has done for us. The shedding of His blood has been sprinkled upon us. We have been truly baptized into Christ by the sprinkling of His blood. And if you will ignore and trample underfoot that blood and have no obedience to Jesus Christ, you won't even obey His first command, which is really a summons, but is at least as soft and sweet as an invitation. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's obedience to Christ. Hear His call. Answer His call. Follow Him. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow Him. So the work of the triune God is at work, and it identifies who we are. I've said from this pulpit many times over the years what I call the bees, the beehive of Christianity, and it's belonging, believing, being, becoming, behaving. Well, this tells us something about our belonging. We've been set apart, we're elect, we're chosen. We belong to Him. His Spirit has separated us unto Himself. And we've been marked with a stain, an indelible stain upon our life. And that is the marking of the precious blood of Jesus. That when the red blood is applied, the soul is purged absolutely white cleansed, ready before God. Now if that's who you are and how you belong, then it might ought to affect your behaving. Maybe we need to walk worthy of the high calling that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus.